Good morning. Let's uh, turn on our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and continue to work our way through this book. We've seen how in uh, chapters 11 through 14, uh, Paul is addressing uh, matters relating to the public worship. This is a young church, lots of enthusiasm, lots of gifts, uh, but also a number of problems, a lot of confusion. And we've seen how he's addressed uh, in these chapters uh, their, um, the behavior of some of their women in worship, the, uh, the, 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 their approach to the Lord's Supper, uh, the way gifts are being practiced. And then last week, as we looked at chapter 13, uh, the priority of love uh, governing all that they do in the body of Christ. And now he comes back in chapter 14 to kind of conclude this section talking again about gifts. And he's going to focus most of his attention here on two particular gifts, the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. And while uh, we don't believe these gifts are operative in the church today, now that the New Testament has been written, uh, there are principles at play here that certainly are very relevant to us as we think about worship and what our priorities are. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 to 25 of 1 Corinthians 14, and then, Lord willing, we'll, uh, we'll take up the second half of the chapter next week. Uh, this is God's Word. Please give your attention. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries, But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification." But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand... How will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance, or that could be translated meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is the conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit and I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with the spirit and I will also sing with the understanding. Otherwise, if you bless with the spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks? since he does not understand what you say. For if you indeed give thanks, well, but the other is not edified. 
I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all of you. Yet in, in the church I would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore... If the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And there will end the reading of God's Word. May God bless us as we consider this together this morning. Well, by any number of measures, Americans today are adulting uh, much later in life than they used to. Uh, marriage statistics show that the average age of marriage has gone from 22 in 1980 to 32 today. The average homeowner is 47 now, up from 31 in 1980. And the percentage of young adults, those under 30, living with their parents has gone from 32% in 1980 to 52% today. And many metrics suggest that uh, adolescence is lasting longer and longer and adulthood is being put off. And perhaps there are some... Uh, that enjoy a kind of Peter Pan lifestyle of perpetual childhood, and there certainly are some attractions to that, um, but that there are other challenges, obviously, that come in with that. Now, what's fascinating is we see this same phenomenon happening in the church, and what I mean by that is the church is struggling with uh, spiritual childishness and uh, an unwillingness to grow up. And, and this is manifested in many different ways. The way the church approaches worship, uh, the way that the church, uh, that people view the purpose of the church, even we could say the value people see in coming to the public worship of God and attending church at all. And the church in Corinth was also having similar problems. Now, their problem wasn't attendance, they were coming to church. But the problem was they were completely confused about what the purpose of their attendance at the church was. And so instead of being mature in their thinking, they were being immature. They were acting like children in their worship. And so in this passage, Paul is urging them to be mature in their thinking and to stop being children. And his focus in this passage is on the public worship. They're gathering together in their assemblies. There, there have been volumes written on chapter 14 trying to untangle the question of speaking in tongues, what it was, uh, what its relevance is today. 
And I would argue that's not really the focus of the passage. The focus of the passage is our attitude when we come to worship. What are we thinking about when we come to worship? And Paul's point here is that when we participate in worship, we honor God by helping to build up one another and even to encourage unbelievers that God brings into our fellowship to know God. And it really is a call for us to be mature in our approach to worship and to be coming into worship. We focus on the Lord, yes, but we're thinking about the other people that we're worshiping with. That that's a key dynamic in the worship. And Lord willing, we'll see how this comes out in our text as we look at it this morning. Now children, I want you to listen. I want you to see if you can draw a picture of how you could build up other people in the church when you come to worship, all right? So you're going to need to listen and uh, draw a picture of one of the things that I mentioned. If you'd like to follow along, there's an outline in the bulletin. And you'll see there that the first thing we want to notice is that a loving church community is the proper context for the use of your gifts in the church. You look at verse 1 of our passage, pursue love. Okay, he's just finished this whole chapter on the priority of love. Love is the thing. Yes, God's given you gifts. Yes, those gifts are important. They're valuable. Different people have different gifts. You should use them. But the context of using them is love. And the love that you have for the congregation that you are in. And you might remember, if you flip back to chapter 12, verse 31, before he went into his... Um, his passage on love in chapter 13, he said to them, but earnestly desire the best gifts. That's what he said at the end of chapter 12. Then in chapter 13, he talks about love. Now he comes back in chapter 14, pursue love. And the word there is, is a word that you could use for a hunter going after his prey. I know we have some hunters in here, right? It's deliberate. It's determined. It's intentional. It's purposeful. It's persistent. We're to pursue love. And it's this agape love we talked about last week, this sacrificial love on behalf of others. That's the context of our life together in the, con in the congregation. And then the second half of verse 1, chapter 14, and desire, or that could be translated, be zealous for spiritual gifts. So he does want them to pursue their gifts, but it's in this context of love. And then at the end of that verse, he says, especially that you may prophesy. And uh, Paul is going to spend a lot of time in this passage comparing prophecy to tongues. And we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. But I want you to realize the context for this is in church. You look at verse 19, he says, uh, he, he says he would rather speak five words with my understanding that I may teach others also than 10,000 words in a tongue. And uh, he's, he started that verse 19 in the church. And actually, in the original language, it's just in church. It's in the assembly. And he mentions the church at least seven times in this chapter. That's the context. So this is not talking about the Bible study that you're doing at home or even with a few of your brothers and sisters. It's when you're in the public assembly of the church. That's what Paul is concerned about. And part of what's going on here is their preoccupation with the gift of tongues is revealing that they're very confused about what the purpose is when they come together in the public worship. 
And one of their key misunderstandings, we've seen this throughout this book, is they do not appreciate and are not concerned with one another. How to bless and to love one another. I put in your outline Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, where, where the author of Hebrews writes, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. That was our call to worship this morning. You see, this is how we love one another, how we consider one another. We're encouraging each other in the faith. As we meet together, we do not forsake the meeting, the assembling of ourselves together. And the implication here is that your participation in the public worship is important for the other people who are here. So even if you could make a case for why you don't need to be in worship, I don't think you can make a case. But if you tried to make a compelling argument that you do not need worship yourself, you cannot make the argument that the other people in the congregation don't need you here. They do. This is what he's saying. Part of the way we love each other is we come together to encourage each other in the worship itself. And this, I think, is what's made this pandemic most difficult for people in the church, especially people who, because of their health, have felt a need to be separated. You cannot replicate what goes on in the meeting of God's people by joining the service online. It's not the same thing. This separation is not good. And I think this has actually been one of the great blessings we've experienced and why the church has even grown during this period of the pandemic. I look back in my notes. We, we did not meet for seven weeks. That's it. And it was the very early days of the pandemic. And uh, we sorted it out fairly quickly and we're back meeting together on the eighth week. And there are churches in our community that still have less than half of their members attending worship. We're way beyond the public health concerns at this point. People have gotten comfortable not coming to church. It's way easier to get up and watch in my pajamas than it is to come into the house of God. But there is a huge cost to that. And Paul is reminding us here, you're to pursue agape love, and you do that in the community of the church, and that's the context for your gifts. That's the reason to desire your gifts, that you would bless the others in the church. So a loving church community, that's the proper context for the use of your gifts. Secondly, we see here that you should especially desire gifts that build up your brothers and your sisters. Now, as I said, throughout this passage, Paul expresses a preference for prophecy over the gift of tongues. And many commentators treat this passage as sort of a definitive explanation of what tongues are. I would argue most people interpret the passage through the grid that they bring to the passage already. So either they're favorably inclined toward what is called tongues today, and they read the passage in a particular way, or they're not favorably inclined, then they read the passage in a different way. But I don't think really Paul's purpose was at all to answer all of our questions about tongues and not to say to us whether this is relevant for today or not. 
I personally do not think it is relevant for us today in the sense that God has given us a completed revelation and we're not relying on sort of supernatural gifts of the Spirit to get revelation. That being said, that's not Paul's concern in this passage. Paul's concern in this passage is are they loving one another when they come to worship? And so if you look through the passage, seven times he repeats the phrase or the word edify, which could be translated build up. That is his focus. Are we building one another up when we come to church. So that's what the better gifts are that he mentions back in chapter 12, verse 31. The better gifts are the gifts we find out in this chapter that build up the body of Christ in our service to the Lord. And so this is why Paul prefers prophecy over tongues. Tongue, uh, Tongues are inadequate, he says, for building each other up. And so you might look at some of these verses in verse Two, he mentions that tongues are directed toward God, while prophecy is directed to the congregation. In verse 3, he says that tongues build up the individual, but that prophecy builds up the whole church. In verse 4, he says that tongues, unless they are interpreted, do not edify the church like prophecy does. In verse 5, He who prophesies is greater, he says, than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. He goes on to tell them in verse 12, since you are zealous for these gifts, excel at those that build up the church like prophecy. That's his focus. Which one is better at building up the church? And so from this, it seems to us that Prophecy is a gift in which God's Spirit is sort of spontaneously enabling people to pass on a word of exhortation to the congregation. Now, some of the older commentators try to argue that prophesying here is just the same as preaching. I think that's a difficult case to make, especially because Paul's urging everyone in the congregation to do it. It's clear that Paul doesn't think everyone in the congregation should be a preacher. This seems to be something different. Leon Morris, I put this in your outline, comments on this. He says, prophecy is something like our preaching, but it is not identical with it. It's not the delivery of a carefully prepared sermon, but the uttering of words directly inspired by God. And it seems, as I said, a first century gift to help the church before the Bible was completed that people were enabled, and even women, we were told in chapter 11, were enabled to speak inspired by the Spirit. The purpose of the prophecy, though, is clear in verse 3. He who prophesies speak edification and exhortation and comfort to men. So that's the purpose, is to build up people in the knowledge of the Lord and in their service to the Lord. Now, tongues is a little more complicated for us to understand what's going on. The gift of tongues in the book of Acts was clearly the miraculous ability to speak foreign languages that you had not learned. I'm sure some of you would love for that gift to still be around, but I don't think that's what's going on here. 
Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 11, you have there these foreigners who have come to Jerusalem and they say, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they're hearing these foreign languages being spoken. They're, they're, they're hearing in their native languages the gospel being preached. But based on what Paul is saying here, it seems like this gift is somewhat different than that. And I've sort of alluded to this before, but let's look at it just briefly. He says in verse 2, He who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. So it seems to be a speaking to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks mysteries. So quite different from what we saw in the book of Acts. People are not understanding, it says. He's speaking mysteries, and he's speaking not to other people, but to God. If you look down in verse 15, uh, he says there, what is the conclusion? That I will pray with the Spirit, I will also pray with understanding. So he, he links prayer to tongues. He also then in that same verse 15 says, I will sing with the Spirit, I will also sing with understanding. He links singing to tongues. In verse 16, he links uh, giving of thanks to tongues. And he says in there at the end of verse 16 that the tongues need to be uh, interpreted in order for someone to understand them. And he, he actually says quite clearly in verse 13, therefore let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. And so this gift of interpretation was not something that was ever mentioned in the book of Acts as being linked to this gift. So then, Tongues seems to be a Holy Spirit-inspired way of speaking to God in prayer and in thanksgiving. And the Holy Spirit is, is, is driving the person in a way of communing with God. It was something, Paul says in verse 4, that edified the person that was doing it. But it also implied here that it could be something that the speaker doesn't even fully understand, but is having a spiritual type of experience. That seems to be what's being described here. And Paul says incredibly in verse 18, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Uh, what he's saying there is he's not against tongue speaking because it's wrong. He's not against it because he can't do it and you can. He's against it because primarily this is a gift that was to be used in private not in public, if we take all that we said together. It did not have a function in the public worship apart from somebody being able to interpret what was being said, but it might have had a function in private devotion. Again, this does not speak to whether this is a thing that's around today. And I, I think that the Spirit has given us a full revelation, and this isn't uh, something that's ordinary or normal in our context today. But this is what was it was normal in Paul's day. Commentator Gordon Fee says, The point of everything in corporate worship is not personal experience in the Spirit, but building up the church itself. And, and this is what they were missing. Their exercise of this gift was not helping anyone else in the church. And this is one of the things, again, the people who think that they can watch church on TV and get the same benefit out of it 
are thinking in some sense like the Corinthians. The Corinthians would come in here and they would look at this group. Okay, the board says there were 169 of you, give or take, last week. He would say 170 people. Each one of you communing with God individually. That's what's important about this meeting. It's the personal interaction that's happening between you and God. That's what they were saying, in essence. And I think it's really easy for us to also think that way about worship. This is the issue, right? Not whether you should be speaking in tongues. The issue is, do you come in here thinking that's what worship is about? My personal experience of God, my devotion, my involvement, my learning, my feeling, my gifts, what I take away from the service. And Paul is saying over and over again in this passage, this is the wrong way to think about worship. It's not about me, my, me, my. It's about us. It's about us, us, us. How do we promote the well-being of our brothers and sisters in the worship service? How do I help the preacher during the worship service? I love the way you smile at me, John. John yells out amen just every once in a while to make sure I know people are awake. John gives me great nonverbal feedback. I know he's listening. Some of you, some of you like this to take notes, and that's actually me too. So I see the top of your head as you're feverishly writing away. But the congregation has a role in this. I am, I mean, I tell you, for those seven weeks when I was in here preaching, and there was a few people in here, so I don't want to minimize that, preaching to the TV, that's hard. That's really hard. The congregate, you have a role in the preaching. How about the singing? Do you have a role in the singing? Yes. And And this children, this involves you as well. I, I can tell if you're listening or not. We can tell if you're singing or not. We can hear if you're singing or not. How about when we pray together? Is that the time when we get to think about taking a little nap, get a little shut-eye in there? Now, um, usually Philip's a little quicker than I am, so you may be thinking, oh, oh good, it's Philip, it's not going to be as long. It could be thinking, oh, good, it's Holdeman, I get more of a nap today during this. That's not the way we should be thinking about the prayer time. We, this is where, as Paul says, we add our amen. We join in and we participate And we should be praying together. Uh, This is the kind of way we ought to be thinking about our worship. How do I participate in this worship in such a way that I am blessing the people around me, that I'm encouraging the people around me, that I'm helping the people around me? And and we can do this by coming prepared, uh, by coming prayerfully, by coming conscious of what we are doing and engaging in the worship. This is what Paul wanted them to think about. Desire gifts that build up the body. And he's talking about the public worship. Thirdly, we see in this passage that the way God typically builds us up is through our minds. So so what is it that makes prophecy preferable to tongues in this passage? Throughout the passage, the answer is the same. It's intelligibility. It's, as my translation says here, the New King James, it's understanding. That's the issue. The the reason that tongues do not benefit is, is not because they're directed to God, not because they're 
thanksgivings or prayers or maybe even songs, it's because without somebody interpreting them, they are not intelligible. That's the argument Paul's making here. Right? He affirms this gift in his day was a good gift. But in the public assembly, it was not intelligible. Therefore, no one understood him, as he says in verse 2. And he uses here four illustrations to demonstrate the problem. So in verse 6, he uses the illustration of Paul himself as the preacher coming, speaking a foreign language, a tongue that they did not understand. And he's basically saying, what if I had come to you when I first came to you in Corinth four four years back or so, and I preached to you in a language that none of you knew? How many converts would we have in this church? We would have none. It would be no profit to you whatsoever if I brought the gospel to you in a language you didn't understand. In verse 7, he uses the illustration of a musical instrument. And, and he says there, what good is it right, if Zeph hands me his, his cello and says, go for it. You, you would never do that, I'm, pro- I'm pretty sure. Right? And, 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 and I can go for it. But it's not going to sound like anything meaningful or beautiful or helpful. It's just noise. And, and this is what he's saying. We come in and you're, you're speaking in a language none of us knows. You're just making noise. It's, it's like an instrument treated that way. Or in verse 8, he talks about a military trumpet, a bugle being used to alert the troops to attack or to retreat perhaps. And if the, 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 the person blowing the bugle is just, it doesn't sound like anything, then the army doesn't know. Are we attacking? Are we retreating? What are we doing now? And, and so it's not helpful. And then in verses 10 and 11, he, he uses the illustration of a person from another con, a country coming to you without a translator, trying to have a conversation with you. Literally, he says, I shall be a barbarian to him. It's translated foreigner in my version. And he shall be a barbarian to me. We're, we're, we're not speaking the same language. Uh, one of my trips to East Asia, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I knew I was supposed to preach in this service. But it, I, that's all I was expecting to do. So I was sitting, and the whole service is going on uh, in Chinese. And so I, you know, I can't follow that that well. Uh, or at all, actually, but am I sitting there? And um, they had a part of their service where they were reading through the Bible, just sequentially. And so it turned out they were reading First uh, Kings uh, chapter, maybe 13 through 15, somewhere in there. And so, of course, I don't really know this. It's uh, all going on in another language. And I'm sitting there, and the translator leans over and says to me, after the reading, you will explain what it means to the people. So, of course, you know, they could have warned me that that was going to happen, but they didn't. So I don't even know what the passage is because it's all happening in a foreign language. So I'm like, what, what are we reading? So, of course, I pull out my English language Bible and quickly uh, try to get, you know, figure out what's going on in these three chapters of First Kings. I defy you to tell me off the top of your head what's happening in those and figure out what's going on there, and then uh, stand up in front, and with the aid of the translator, try to make some coherent comments about what it means. But if I didn't have an English Bible there, or a translator, there was no hope that I was going to be able to do anything. 
And this is what Paul's saying. When you're doing something that's not going through our mind, you're not helping. This is why he says then in verse 14, I, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. And, uh, and, and that understanding could be translated, my mind is unfruitful. And quoting again from Leon Morris, this is in your outline, he says, the Christian life is considerably more than a mental exercise. So we don't want to reduce it to just thinking. But anyone whose mind is unfruitful is not being true to his Christian calling. Our minds are to be engaged and at work. And so he gives us in verse 15, uh, what's the solution? He says, what's the conclusion? Then I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding or with my mind uh, so that he wants to understand. And this is what he's saying. It's not an either or, it's a both and. I need my spirit engaged as the Holy Spirit leads me and I need my mind engaged. As, as Jesus said to the woman at the well, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is what he's calling us for. We learn from God's word. We are changed by God's word. We are challenged. We are comforted. We are rebuked. We are encouraged by God's word. And this is a sad reality in the evangelical church today in our world, is that there is very little appeal to the mind. There is appeal to almost everything else but the mind. In fact, it seems sometimes like the American Christian church is almost proudly anti-intellectual today, as if it's a badge of honor that we don't read good books or allow our assumptions to be challenged or debate serious theological questions. And this mindset, of course, spills over to how the church in our country treats children. How are children treated in most churches? They are shuttled off to playtime and snack time, and maybe there's a Bible story fit in there, but they are not considered worthy or appropriate, which is probably a better word, people to be in the public worship. And children, I want you to understand, we not only want you to be in the worship, we need you to be in the worship service. We want you in environments where you are challenged, where you are learning, where you are growing, and we want that to be here as well as in your homes and the other places in your lives. And of course, it's not just for the children, it's for us as well. That means some of us may need to read a challenging Christian book. I know that sounds like a horrible assignment to give you, but we need to challenge ourselves. The way we grow is through the mind. God teaches us, we learn, and our spirituality works out through that. So recognize this passage is reminding us God works through our minds. Fourthly, this passage reminds us that we need to conduct ourselves in worship in such a way that both believers and unbelievers benefit. And so the last part of this chap of this section that we're studying, verses 20 to 25, he really focuses somewhat on unbelievers. He says in verse 22, Therefore tongues are a sign, not to those who believe, 
but to unbelievers. But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Now, this has caused a lot of debate because it seems like in the very next verse, he says exactly the opposite. He says that if you, if you practice tongues in front of unbelievers, they'll think you're crazy. And, and so what's going on? One of the explanations is that this may be one of those places we've seen throughout the book where he's actually quoting them or he's addressing something that they are saying. And it could be that they're saying, hey, you're criticizing this use of tongues, but tongues have a really great evangelistic effect because when unbelievers come in and we've we got this great thing going on where there's people talking in tongues, it's really impressive. And, and unbelievers are like, wow, that's cool. We're coming back again next week. And, and so this is that what they're saying. And, and Paul is saying, uh, no, that's actually not what's happening. And that may be what's going on in the passage. Another possible way of looking at this is if we look back at what he says in verse 21. He says there, in the law it is written, and he's actually quoting there, it's kind of a mashup of Isaiah 28 verses 11 and 12 and Deuteronomy 28 verse 49. I've put those cross-references in the, in the bulletin. Uh, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. And, And what this passage is getting at is that it was a sign of God's judgment. God spoke to them through prophets that they could understand, and they didn't listen to them. So in response, God sent the Assyrian army in to conquer them. And God said, fine, I'll speak to you through the Assyrians. You don't understand a word they're saying. It's a It's a sign of judgment. And, and so it seems like Paul's also saying here that speaking a language that I don't understand, that's not a sign of God's blessing. That's a sign of judgment when I don't understand the word that God is speaking to me. And it could be perhaps in that sense that he's saying these are a sign for unbelievers. But regardless, he says in verse 23, and makes it clear as to this practice Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues and there comes in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? Literally, that could be translated, you are insane. This is what the outsider's opinion will be when we come into a church that's practicing this practice as he's describing it. And as a sad side note, I think... Uh, this is in fact what does happen sometimes in Pentecost, certain Pentecostal churches where there is this kind of thing going on and an outsider comes in and is literally uh, blown away uh, with what is happening. In contrast, though, he says in verse 24, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. He comes in and he hears a word from God telling him that he's not loving his wife like Christ loved the church. And he hears that as a word for himself. And he's brought under conviction by the Holy Spirit. And he's brought to faith. That's the ideal. That's what should be happening in the church of God. I got a report that one of our families was off visiting 
uh, was out of town and visited another church. And although they were clearly visitors to the church, nobody spoke to them from the church. And uh, even so much as when they stayed after, nobody spoke to them. And I think this would be what Paul's getting at, is that when we come into the church, we're concerned not only with building one another up, but with encouraging uh, people who are not a part of our church, who might be here. And some of them might even be unbelievers. And I think this is helpful for us to remind ourselves. When we come to church... We desire that God would be working among us, that we would encourage each other, but that we would encourage anyone that God would bring among us, especially someone who might not yet know the Lord, that they would come to know the Lord. No excuse for someone to come in and walk out and not be greeted. And there are many ways that you can do this. Um, this is a kind of a different process we use where we sing psalms and we don't use instruments. And uh, we all know that the numbers are up there on the board in case you don't have a bulletin. But a visitor might not know any of those things. A visitor might not know, okay, there's a Bible in here in the pew as well and that the blue one and the red one are for singing and the black one is the Bible. It's really easy for you to look over and see that person is confused. I'm going to help right now not after the service, right now in the worship, I'm going to open this book and say, here, here's what we're singing right here. There's a lot of ways that we can do this. And I'm very grateful because I think that our congregation is aware, very aware of this. But just a reminder that we come here thinking about how we can bless the other people around us. And then finally, we see here a wonderful promise that God promises to make His presence known among us when we worship like adults. So if you look at verse 20, here's, here's the bottom line command that comes out of this text. Brethren, do not be children in understanding. However, in malice be babes, right? Be innocent, he's saying, be humble. Jesus recommended the faith of children. But in understanding, be mature. Be spiritual Adults. That's what he's saying to them. They had prioritized personal experience over the congregation. He's telling them to be mature in their thinking. Uh, commentators Kiampa and Rosner say public worship of God is at its heart a communal experience in which one honors God by keeping a clear focus on Him and those others with whom one is engaging in worship. And when we do that, what does he say in verse 25? He says, The unbeliever will worship God and report that God is truly among you. That's an amazing thing. That we should be a place, whatever else happens here, that somebody says, God is in your midst. This is why we come to worship, to meet with God, to experience God. And we can do this because the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth and lived a perfect life in our place. Think about Jesus as a 12-year-old 
was in the temple courts learning, learning, studying. Jesus spent his life ministering. He was in the temple regularly after he left Jerusalem. He was in the synagogue teaching the word of God, ministering to believers and to his lost sheep who had not yet come home. Jesus did this perfectly so that people like you and me who don't come into worship thinking about others like we should could be forgiven, could be encouraged, could be helped in this so that we might worship him truly and in a way that helps other people. I got to see my three-year-old niece this weekend. And uh, she got a little birthday present, just turned three, a memory card game. So you have all these cards with the very uh, shiny pictures on them, and so you lay them all out, and then you turn them over, you try to match them. Well, she laid them all out with her dad. He showed her how you turn them over. I didn't exactly see what happened. The next time I turned around, cards were everywhere, all over the floor, right? That, that's how a child does it. child's attracted to shiny, bright things. child likes the pictures. child's not interested in the substance. This is a game with rules. Pfft, it's all over. And this is what Paul was saying we can be like in our approach to worship. He's saying it's time to grow up, to recognize that love has to be at the center of our worship. We need to love our brothers and sisters. We need to love the lost. We need to engage our minds. We need to come seeking to build one another up so that we all meet with Jesus and we can say when we come out of here, we have met with God by His grace. Your participation in worship is meant to build up those around you and to bless even unbelievers who might be in our midst. We rejoice in that because Jesus Christ can make us mature to do that faithfully. So let's pray and we'll ask him to help us. Lord, we confess that perhaps in different ways, different than these Corinthians, we do have spiritually immature attitudes and ideas about what worship is for and what we should be prioritizing in our worship And we thank you for this passage where Paul makes it clear. We we certainly don't understand everything we'd like to about speaking in tongues, but we understand very clearly what Paul was trying to teach here, which is that we need to come to the worship prepared to engage our minds and to love our brothers and sisters and to do everything we can to encourage one another, to see each other built up in the faith, to experience your presence in such a way that even an unbeliever who comes to visit with us would know that God is here. Lord, we're so thankful that you promised to meet with your people. We pray that you'd help us to grow in our maturity, help us to be prepared and to come to worship with the right expectations. And Lord, we pray that through Christ you would continue to meet with us, to build us up, and to equip us for your service. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we'll uh, respond back to the Lord by singing from Psalm 46, Selection A, out of the blue psalm book. So if you turn to Psalm 46, 
one of the things this describes the great power and the awesome might of the Lord, but also describes the Lord as the one who is with us. And then that is our great hope and encouragement that He is the God who is with His people. Let's stand and we'll sing Psalm 46a.